One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how you doing? I'm doing good, and I've got to say, I'm doing a little bit better than Fox News at the moment. Will, we're like a week out from this Tucker Carlson firing. What's going on with their ratings right now as you say we're a week out tucker did sort of a photo op for the daily mail outside the the retire the village's retirement community in florida where he zipped around in a golf cart it's so funny this stuff where they're like he's like actually it rules to get fired i love it it's so cool like benny johnson's been all in on it he's just like he's unleashed finally he can tell the truth um, but, you know, so while Tucker, you know, at least is pretending to be living his best life, things are looking pretty grim at Fox by comparison. You know, we've got the ratings in for the first week. Assange Tucker, I'm just going to quote here from a Washington Post article. Previously, Tucker was pulling in, you know, more than three million people a night. Pretty good. And number one, perhaps except when occasionally beaten by the five earlier uh, in, the, in the day, Tucker was the most watched cable news show. Then... Without Tucker, he's been pulling it. They've been pulling in half that at 1.65 million. So a rough time at Fox News. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is one rare moment where I've got to give a lot more credit than I normally assume for Fox News viewers. I kind of thought that that was just a program that someone turns on at five in the morning and lets run throughout the course of the day. But this shows that people were very actively tuning into Tucker and that they're making active choices not to watch who's in in the seat now. It's a Brian Kilmeade, and he doesn't have the juice. People are very actively turning off the channel. Did you see that clip of Brian Kilmeade where, when he's hosting this, where he just yes. says, like, he gets very meta with it, where he just says, all right, and then a graphical play, and we'll go to commercial. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's very, he's really going through the motions with it. I really appreciated it. I thought, I thought it was, you know, it was insightful commentary. It was, uh, you know, it was, it really showed an awareness of his surroundings, but I get how that might not have landed with the people who wanted, I don't know, something hateful about trans people or, you know, just something to rile him up. Well, you know, poor Kilmeade. I mean, he looks like he's facing a firing squad, particularly that first night where he's just like, oh, God, OK, you know, I, I, I got to do the show. I got to go through the motions. Yeah, it's, it's a rough place to be in. Right. Because, I mean, as we talked last week, Tucker could bring it. I mean, it, not <laughs> certainly <laughs> not a <laughs> <laughs> big, big Tucker fan. Yeah. here. <laughs> uh, under no circumstances, he can credit to ISIS. But no, I mean, Tucker, for for the people who love him, he is, you know, he is their guy. And 
I don't think uh, Brian Kilmeade really has the same, uh, the same sauce, the same vitriol. He's not going to go on there and talk about ball tanning. I think he had a segment about, you know, uh, a cow on the loose this week. I mean, really already sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, I mean, Kilmeade, you know, among other things, and he doesn't have the that sort of connection to the Internet, right? I, I believe Anna Merlin advice wrote a story uh, last week about how Tucker was really this bridge for for bringing like your four channy elements onto Fox News. But, you know, we're seeing a little report. I think Semaphore had a story saying that Jesse Waters, as, as we predicted, come here first to Fever Dreams, folks, where we just we just we take our best guess. But that Jesse Waters is the front runner right now. Yeah, the heir apparent. You know, again, I don't really see him as like personally hanging out on 4chan, but you can always hire one of those writers. I mean, God knows there's enough of them swilling around in that swamp. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But what is interesting to me, actually, is so, you know, as goes Tucker, so goes Newsmax. And when Tucker left Fox, Newsmax saw a little bit of a bump. Um, it doesn't seem like it was super sustainable, but on Tuesday night, right after Tucker was fired, they apparently got five times as many viewers in their 8 p.m. block. That's dropped a little bit, you know, not too many people actively watching Newsmax. But, it, I mean, it does seem like people are switching some of their allegiance. People are looking for an alternative, you know, kind of red meat channel to watch and Newsmax knows that they're really trying to poach those disgruntled Tucker viewers claiming you that you know Fox is too woke for Tucker they couldn't handle him so there is reporting coming out of TMZ suggesting that Newsmax has like offered Tucker the keys to the kingdom not just saying you're going to have your own show but hey buddy come in run this whole channel for us please um Tucker is in, uh, he's in contract negotiations with Fox, so it doesn't sound like he can take anything immediately, but they are really rolling out the red carpet for this guy. They're so thirsty for it. I mean, yeah, as you said, I mean, the problem with switching to Newsmax is that then you actually have to watch Newsmax, right? I mean, like, it's just not hitting the same. There is kind of this funny PR stunt thing going on where everyone who wants attention says, I would love to hire Tucker Carlson. The folks at One America News were tweeting like, wow, maybe now's our big chance to land Tucker. Um, Because, you know, everyone wants to be seen as a player. So this thing where people are trying to get publicity by offering Tucker a job he obviously won't take really hit its lowest level today. I got an email from listeners may remember this thing called the EE system, which is a screen of static that supposedly has magical curing powers and people pay tens of thousands of dollars. And one of the guys who promotes this system, he claims he's in touch with a human slash alien intelligence, blah, blah, blah. And so he's put out a press release saying like the alien intelligence wants to pay Tucker a hundred million bucks to go work for it. And it was very, very straightforward. But again, just like news, I think Newsmax has about as much of a chance of hiring Tucker as this alien uh, cabal. I totally disagree. I think I plunged Tucker straight into the divine. Let him commune with the aliens. Let's get like some kind of ziggurat situation going. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in that. Honestly, that would be a pretty good pivot, kind of like alien tech, Tucker futurism. Tucker loves aliens. That's like one of his weird conspiracy throwout things. I'll have those, um, nobody watches them, but the Fox Nation segments, right, where he's talking about like a ritualistic cow murder and implying that it must be aliens or chupacabras. He's really got, I think, a paranormal tie-in. Well, just very briefly before we move on, you talk about Fox Nation. Tucker is now the subject of some leaks 
of his old Fox Nation footage. So as we record this, a new Media Matters now has been publishing this leaked footage. We don't know who's sending it out, but I suspect they work for Fox News. And so the first footage that came out was Tucker complaining about the Fox Nation website and saying it sucks and no one watches it. Just as we record this now, there's footage of Tucker talking about his postmenopausal fans, which honestly, I have to say, like, if this is the worst Tucker is saying off the air, I mean, maybe he's not such a bad guy. I mean, obviously I'm kidding there, but like, we're just like, all right, this is the real damning stuff in the dossier. He insulted our streaming website. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it is actually interesting that Dominion ended up doing more impactful reporting than Fox, which is ostensibly a news website or a news channel here, because Dominion got, I think, the really good stuff in their discovery process. And if this is Fox leaking a kind of unflattering Tucker footage to harm his reputation or to, I don't know, make it harder for him to go to another channel. I got to say, it's not really as juicy. Yeah, well, I think they're just ramping it up. Hopefully this, this will continue and the leaks will go on. Speaking of leaks, should we move on to our next topic? Yes, absolutely. Because this is one of our favorite recurring characters all leaking against each other. It sounds kind of like a damn burst of leaks. There's been a lot of backstabbing and kind of whispering, and it's all led up to this momentous reveal from Steven Crowder, right-wing shock jock, previously in the news for his feud with the Daily Wire. But Will, can you explain what he came out with early last week? Yeah, let's untangle this web with featuring such spiders as Steven Crowder, Candace Owens, and Owen Benjamin. A lot of Owens going on to try to keep track. Okay, so here's the deal. So Steven Crowder, we all know him as the voice of one of Arthur's friends on the PBS show Arthur as a child. But now he's grown up and he's a right-wing shock jock, as you said. His fans, he sells them coffee mugs and they call themselves the Mug Club and just generally an unpleasant character. Well, a few months ago, he got in a big feud with the Daily Wire because they offered him only $50 million. Absolutely insulting. Any podcast host knows you've got to go for a lot more than that. And so this then created a sort of a side feud with Candace Owens, who works for the Daily Wire as another right-wing pundit herself. And she did this thing where she said, it's my understanding Stephen's really going through a lot right now. So let's give him some sympathy. So a little passive-aggressive. But apparently, it then came out last week that what Candace meant, now this was January of 2023, roughly, now, it's April, and which Crowder comes out with a video where he says, Candace is extorting me. She was alluding to the fact that in 2021, previously unreported, my wife filed for divorce. And so I've been going through this divorce, and Candace was kind of hinting at details in my divorce. So then he puts out this video that I would say... I would not describe as going through a very like friendly co-parenting type divorce. So he says, look, I chose the wrong woman. Oh, God, what a thing to say, right? And then he complains that women are allowed to divorce their husbands without permission from their husbands. He sort of says, look, what can I do? My spouse can't be imprisoned by me. And so then Candace Owens comes out and says, I'm going to hit him with a cease and desist. I'm not extorting him, whatever. Then, Kelly, what's the next beat in this? So Candace is like, I'm going to send you a cease and desist. You can't accuse me of extortion. And I actually think she has a point here because I've seen the letter that Stephen Crowder's attorney sent back to her basically being like, well, you can't sue us for saying that you're an extortionist because when he said it was extortion, he was saying that he felt like he was being extorted. It was his emotions, not so much a legally actionable claim, which is a good one. I see how that holds up in court if indeed it does go there. So Stephen Crowder, I think, maybe provide a little bit more context here. He's kind of like this 
aspiring Christo-fascist character, really big on like a traditional marriage. And my marriage was great because we waited until we were married to have sex or whatever. And they got married really young. And so he would write all these articles about like why it rules to get married, you know, before you're 25, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. He really held his marriage up as like a model for others and not like in a way that's like, hey, I love my wife, but more like your marriage is unpure and godless. So he was really kind of on that scoldy marriage influencer train. And so the other shoe inevitably drops here because after Steven Crowder goes public with this divorce, which by all accounts has been in the works for, what, two years now, well, his soon-to-be ex-wife's family weighs in. They sent uh, ring surveillance footage to Charlie. He's a journalist, a blogger. Um, Twitter personality. Twitter personality. And... Gotta say, this footage, not really the ideal marriage that I think Stephen Crowder has been promoting. Frankly, it's harrowing. His wife is extremely pregnant with her twins. Stephen Crowder is kind of plopped on an outdoor couch. He is berating her for not doing her chores. I mean, it sounds a little mild, but that's what he's doing. He's telling her, no, you can't take the car to go get groceries because if you do that, then what if I have to go to the gym unexpectedly or something like that? He's telling her that she needs to put on gloves to give their dogs a medication. The backstory for that is that she's worried the dog medication is harmful to pregnant women. That's extremely common. And rather than giving the dogs their meds himself, he's saying you need to put gloves on and do it yourself. She's being, I think, quite frank that this is really hurtful stuff he's saying, not just berating her for not doing additional housework, but for, he says in the clip, oh, I don't even love you. I mean, it's it's really rough. It's really grim. I mean, watching it, I could see it being a little triggering. It was like, it, you really just get this really like negative vibe from it. So in the video here, this is like a stereotypical idea of what you might imagine being married to a right-wing talk radio hostess. Because he's just sitting there in his shorts. He's smoking a cigar. You know it, right? It seems to be just like a random Tuesday, but he's got to have that cigar going. He's got this kind of McMansion pool in the background. And his wife, who's eight months pregnant, she's got to go grocery shopping. So she wants to take their one car. Now, there's been a lot of speculation. How does Steven Crowder only have one car? He lives in suburban Texas. Who knows? But he's saying, oh, no. He's not saying, oh, no, dear wife, please put your feet up. I'll go grocery shopping. No, he's saying, you know, you need to go grocery shopping. But you need to leave the car here because I might decide I want to go to the gym or visit some friends. <laughs> and so he says, well, why don't you just call yourself an Uber and go do that? And then so they get in this big argument. He's, as you said, says some very unkind things to her. I mean, she seems in this very kind of placating mode and he's just berating her. And so then this video comes out. People say, oh, Stephen, this is not looking so good for you. And he says, well, look, and I will say, Previous to this, I, to Will Summer, not Stephen Crowder, I had tried to get the divorce records once all this started coming out, but they're very sealed. And this Texas clerk was like, hey, creep, why don't you stop digging around in these divorce files? All right, fair enough. But then Stephen Crowder says, well, if you're going to put out my ring video, wife's family, I'm going to file to unseal all of these divorce records. And let's just say, he says, we're going to release some mental health history and evaluations, perhaps. And so... This should be resolved in a couple of weeks, whether this stuff gets unsealed. But it seems as though Stephen Crowder is now in this mood of like, well, we're going to put out all this stuff. Often when people do this, when a public figure kind of starts leaking stuff that's meant to exonerate them, it often does not go that way. I'm thinking of the Jonathan Majors a domestic violence case that's working its way out of New York, where he put out these text messages that are supposed to prove he's innocent. I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And so this is all working its way out. Is this the end of Stephen Crowder? Perhaps not. 
But even from some of his fans, you know, I go on the Steven Crowder subreddit, one of my spots, and even there, people are starting to go like, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much of that has to do with the fact that, again, he did build his reputation as like, I'm a family man, right? I mean, well, there's so many elements to this. I mean, can we even missed the fact that this started coming out because Steven Crowder, I guess, got on the wrong side of Owen Benjamin, Barataria, flat earth character, who pointed out he's like, okay, well, Steven claims to be a family man. Here are the publicly available, at least dockets that you can see for his ongoing divorce been going on since 2021. And of course, Steven's like, oh, this is a betrayal that you would put this out there. You're trying to extort me, et cetera. But now Steven's jumping the gun saying, huh, fine, I'll put him out. Yeah, I mean, I believe Steven Crowder, these guys used to dress and drag together for comedy shows, stuff like this. And now it's the ultimate betrayal. Owen's off in Bertaria. Now he's trying to build Bertaria too, I think, in Georgia. So he's got a lot on his mind, but not enough to fire off a couple shots at Steven Crowder. So I went on the Crowder subreddit and the amount of cope that's going on there. A couple things they said, well, maybe so he doesn't want his wife to drive. Well, what if she was on medication or sleep deprived? Maybe Steven was trying to save her life. Or they're saying, oh, so she apparently called police after this argument. Well, that would show that Steven's not such a bad guy because then there's no record of her calling the police for him doing something worse, you know, all this stuff. So still, I think overall, Steven's kind of getting people are kind of turning on him on the right, particularly right wing women, which which is certainly understandable. These women pundits are saying you portray yourself as this real like provider family man, yet you're expecting your wife to sort of be your servant when she's eight months pregnant. We maybe didn't reference this, but a big takeaway from this video has been him saying you're not performing your wifely duties, which like, oh, brother. Yeah, for real. Also, the wife's family came out. They basically said that Stephen actually initiated the divorce. So, I mean, there's such a disparity between what he claims to be and what this video and what these statements seem to imply. And I just I have to think this is a real fall from grace for somebody who was offered, what, 50 million dollars at the beginning of the year. Like, buddy, you should have taken that big sack of cash and just podcasted quietly into the night. Yeah, he fumbled the bag big time. I mean, he definitely was trying to be like a Ben Shapiro level media mogul. And at this point, I mean, it's hard to imagine really like A-list talent that he was trying to recruit, really wanting to associate themselves with him now. All right. And this story is so hot. As we have been recording it, this, a new article has come out from the New York Post detailing Steven Crowder. And I, and I, and I hesitate to say this, but, but we always tell it like it is here on Fever Dreams. Detailing Steven Crowder's habit, allegedly, of whipping out his hog, whipping out his block and tackle, and exposing his genitals to employees. Kelly, what, what do you make of this? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Well, listen, I actually think it's interesting that it's coming out from the New York Post as a conservative outlet that tells me more than anything. Blood is in the water. Yeah. Crowder is cooked. Listen, never, never a great uh, sign when the leader of your company is, you know, uh, Hog, in this case, he is accused of uh, putting his balls on someone he called not gay Jared. I don't think that speaks to a really uh, nice work culture there, uh, you know, and, and lesser allegations. He's accused of being very volatile with his staff. They're saying that he would uh, tell people to do his laundry for him. It kind of jives with the uh, demands he's making of his wife. So, yeah, this guy, I'm not so sure it's going to pan out well for him. He's a big baby. He's he's like, uh, you know, not willing to do his chores. I mean, now and then, you know, moving on to this, this genitals thing. I mean, first of all, New York Post, we're kind of trying to gauge here how much of the knives are out for Crowder, given that the Post is putting it out there. But they really buried the lead here. They hid the the exposure stuff at the bottom of the story. But just to be clear here. 
We're not talking about one exposure incident. No, I believe there's three or four in this article that former employees allege. So, okay. Let me quote from the article. Not gay Jared was asleep in the last row of this van. Stephen was in front and he was joking about what he was going to do. The staffer recalled he climbed over and dropped his junk on top of Jared's shoulder. Again, there's a second incident where they where Crowder exposes himself to Jared while filming a parody of the movie Ghost. Now, th- that's a pretty topical reference if there ever was one. And then uh, during a 2018 flight with six people from the company, another former employee said they witnessed Crowder put his testicles on his assistant. Oh, man. A fourth employee said Crowder exposed himself to former co-host Dave Landau. Now, Dave Landau has now <laughs> betrayed Crowder, but he's basically come out openly and said Crowder's a bully. This is reaching the level of the famous anti-woke bank that we've talked about. And you know where you know people were having sex on Zoom calls and stuff like that? When you know you reach that level, it's hard to come back from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Post says, like, there were six witnesses to Stephen whipping out his junk. I mean, when you're, when you've hit that critical threshold, I don't think you're coming back from that. I do like this one quote from uh, somebody who saw alleged ball incident. He says, if your manager at Red Lobster did this, it would be national news. And I think that's a good perspective to uh, to place on this because often we let uh, right-wing media slide with a lot of things. We hear a lot of stories about toxic cultures behind the scenes. Well, let's think about it this way. You know, if you have a functional HR uh, department, if you're working at a restaurant or something like that, you know, where basic hygiene rules apply, this kind of stuff, not really kosher. Well, it's funny to bring up a restaurant because this does rec- recall the antics of the the mid aughts uh, gross out comedy waiting, right? But you know the it is overall I think um, not looking good for old Crowder here that these stories are coming out. Kind of reminds me of the Ali Alexander situation in that you know you have these things that everyone gets sort of used to and is like oh yeah that guy's a little crazy you know he's he's allegedly asking kids for nudes or or he's whipping out his junk all the time and then someone says wait a minute is this a bit weird and then suddenly the stories just come pouring pouring out yeah absolutely like we've discussed many times they all you know hoard a different kind of junk on each other they're all you know collecting screenshots and massing things for when they have their next big uh, anime betrayal moment and it looks like that is coming right now for Stephen Crowder <laughs> Well, speaking of failed right-wing media ventures, Kelly, you've got an update from Parler. I really amassed power user status there, and so I'm hoping this site is really going to be around for a while. What's going on? Yeah, well, it's definitely on the up and up. I think you're going to build a lot of clout here, get a real organic following. No, it's the, unfortunately, I'm very sad to tell you, but two weeks ago already, Parler was purchased by kind of a vaguely conservative media firm called Starboard, and they shut it down. Like there's if you go to the parlor site now, it's just a press release being like websites gone, folks go somewhere else. And the reason this didn't make a ton of news when it happened, obviously everyone did their write ups, is that no one really uses parlor all that much right now. We're kind of in the era of truth social or Elon era Twitter, which I think makes both truth social and parlor a little irrelevant. And this is starting to look like the end of the road for what was once a very vaunted right-wing social media site. So we've got some good new reporting from our colleague, Zach Patrizzo. He was leaked some communications on a Discord from current and former Parler employees, and they are pretty steamed with new management. A lot of them are talking about, let's just launch our own new, new Parler. We're going to... Fifth times the charm, right? They're calling it maybe it's going to have like about 65% of the parlor DNA. But what I love about this ambitious new venture is they're anticipating their operating costs at being about $300 a month for development. And oh, buddy, (laughs) I don't think you fully get what it takes to run and moderate an extremely contentious 
right-wing website full of people who stuck around even after that whole insurrection episode on Parler. Yeah, I mean, so just considering the rise and fall of Parler here, I mean, Parler for one brief moment sort of had it all in terms of being like it, they were really well positioned to be the right-wing Twitter alternative. For whatever reason, I always felt like Parler had broader name recognition among normal folks. Well, you know what it was for me, Will, is that there were other previous Twitter clone efforts, but they just worked like, I don't know, maybe Craigslist in 2000. There's Gab. No one's going to use Gab. Gab doesn't even work. Parlor, at least you could consistently log in. And I think that was really something big going for them. Yeah, I think that's right. And maybe also their association with January 6th. But then Parler kind of treaded water for a while. And then Kanye was going to buy them during his short manic episode. And then they said, well, that obviously fell through. It was interesting to me that Candace Owens, who offered Kanye a lot of advice, was in her husband who had shares of Parler seemingly would have benefited from that sale. But that fell through. And now Parler is being mothballed. The larger thing here is as much as these guys want to launch Parler, too, is there really any need for Parler in an Elon Musk Twitter zone? I mean, in an age where Elon Musk owns Twitter, I'd say like probably not really. No, I think you're right, because everybody who joined Parler because they're mad that they got banned from Twitter or whatever, they're allowed back on Twitter now, right? I mean, we've seen the Laura Loomer, who previously chained herself to the Twitter headquarters, now is back on Twitter. She's doing her Twitter spaces on there, right? Everybody who previously caught a ban is back on. And not only that, but some of them are being able to monetize their posts. A lot of folks got a notification the other day saying, hey, Libs of TikTok now has subscribers on Twitter and you can, are you sure you wouldn't like to give libs of TikTok some money. So that's really the uh, the situation on Twitter right now. It is, if anything, I think an incubator for right-wing voices. And it just, the, what's a parlor going to do? What do they offer that a, um, a, a Twitter with uh, what they've got? Lynn Wood is back on it now. Really? Yeah, his, uh, his, oh, his account's back. I just don't see what parlor can possibly offer people, except if I might just like throw out a theory here. Parlor one thing that it did to ostensibly crack down on spam really early on is it said you can sign up, but you've got to use your phone number. And, you know, as a journalist, I'm like, oh, all right, I'm doing this for work. I'll give you my phone number. Well, far from just sending you verification codes, making sure you're not getting hacked or whatever, Parler went and it leveraged that phone number list into kind of a scammy marketing situation. Um, it would send out text messages being like, hey, you're, uh, you've are you got exclusive access to Crypto Trump's NFT collection, or uh, they would offer 15% off something called We the People Wine. They uh, did campaign fundraising for somebody who had zero chance at winning a Republican running against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is, for better or worse, a presumably pretty large list of phone numbers of people who are mostly um, very plugged into the right or journalists. I, or journalists is right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, that has to be the explanation is that it's the email list, it's the phone list. So RIP Parlor, we hardly knew you. You sure were helpful for the people who planned January 6th. Kelly, who's our guest this week? All right. This week, we are joined by Jason Wilson. He's a journalist at the Southern Poverty Law Center, where he's really plugged into an ongoing situation out west where Ammon Bundy and his people's right network are uh, maybe have a little bit of a standoff brewing. So Jason's going to come on, catch us up to speed on that. You know, we've talked about this uh, Eamon Bundy situation for a little while, so I'm excited to talk to someone who really knows what's going on and dive into it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right. We are joined by Jason Wilson. He is a reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Jason, thanks for coming on. Hey, no problem. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, Jason, you've been monitoring really closely the situation in Idaho where Ammon Bundy is maybe threatening a standoff. But I want to take a couple steps back and remind our listeners, you know, who exactly is Ammon Bundy? Well, this is not his first standoff. Ammon Bundy is part of the Bundy family. The Bundy family had a standoff in Nevada with the federal government in 2014 over um, their failure to pay for grazing on public lands. You know, your listeners may remember that. And that involved a whole bunch of supporters of theirs turning up at the ranch, militia types, anti-government activists. They were armed. There's a famous image of, you know, one of their supporters from Idaho taking a bead on federal agents from behind a, you know, barricade there. And the federal government actually backed down in, in that case. They confiscated some of their cattle and they eventually released them. That case was put to trial in Nevada, I believe, in 2019. The feds also lost that case. Then in 2016, Ammon led a bunch of anti-government activists into a standoff with the federal government once again by occupying the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Honey County in Oregon, near Burns, Oregon. That went on for a couple of months. I was actually up there covering that uh, for The Guardian at the time. The feds waited them out, you know, arrested Ammon and actually Lavoy Finnegan, one of his, you know, like-minded <laughs> occupants of the of the wildlife refuge was, was shot dead uh, by Oregon state troopers and federal agents when they were intercepted and they were on their way to Grant County where they perceived that there was a, a sympathetic sheriff for them to talk to. And they were kind of apprehended on this remote road there's, there was a dramatic kind of situation where Lavoie Finnegan exited the car armed and he was he was shot dead by federal agents. Again, they were tried in Oregon over that, you know, on a conspiracy charge which kind of fell apart. They, they got off scot-free there as well. Uh, and since then, Mr. Bundy lives in Emmett, Idaho and has done for some time. He likes to wear a cowboy hat, but immediately before the Malheur standoff, he actually ran a business that did maintenance on car fleets. Uh, he hasn't been in the ranching game for some time. You know, that's where his business was in Emmett, Idaho. And then when COVID came around, he decided to get into the anti-vax kind of game uh, and um, became a very uh, strident anti-vaccine activist, was opportunistically looking around for people who he could defend from government overreach as he sees it. Uh, and there was one woman called Sarah Brady, 
who who he adopted as a cause. She had been arrested for having her kids play on play equipment that had been, you know, locked down in COVID. And he was kind of like resisting, in this case, state government, county government level restrictions and started this thing called the People's Rights Network, which is still in existence. And they did all kinds of things like harassing local government officials, uh, blockading health facilities. He then ran for Idaho governor last year unsuccessfully. Along the way in all of this, the thing with Amon Bundy is that there's so much law with this guy. <laughs> He's been at it for so long and has been involved in so many uh, kind of radical anti-government protests and actions that, that you know, uh, there, there's a lot of detail here. But suffice to say that last May, one of his People's Rights Network activists who's close to him, a guy called Diego Rodriguez, his grandson was taken to a hospital, St. Luke's in Idaho. You know, baby Cyrus was the the rallying cry and the hospital and, you know, the child welfare authorities there in Idaho kept kept the baby in the hospital because they said it was malnourished. And Ammon and his people claimed that the baby had been forcibly vaccinated against the wishes of the kid's parents and obviously against the wishes of his grandfather, Diego Rodriguez. So we've set up who Eamon Bundy is. I guess how would you describe him? He's kind of just like an anti-government guy floating around in the, the Upper West. And so tell me, how does he bring us to the baby Cyrus situation and how Bundy gets involved in that? The thing about Eamon Bundy is, yes, he's an anti-government activist. His ideas really... You know, he's a part of the LDS church and, and there's a kind of tradition that doesn't involve everyone who's in, involved in that church, but there's there's a kind of strand of LDS believers who are kind of attracted to the conspiracy theories of people like Cleon Skousen and to conspiratorial readings of Mormon texts, and he's certainly in that camp. He raises a lot of money off off taking up these causes from the, the, the kind of small proportion of the population who who agrees with his positions, uh, which are quite radical. He doesn't believe that the federal government has any constitutional right to manage public lands, for instance. He believes that the, the county sheriff is the highest constitutional authority in the land. And there are people who agree with that and see him as a leader and are prepared to kind of donate to his causes. Now, the People's right, Rights Network has, among other things, been a pretty successful fundraising operation for him. And throughout COVID, I think it's fair to say that he's been looking around for causes to take up uh, in order to keep this thing going and, it, and also in order to keep his movement going. And Diego Rodriguez was someone who was sort of prominent in the People's Rights Network as an ally of Bundy's. And his grandson was taken into this hospital. The hospital and the state of Idaho, the child welfare authorities there said that the baby was malnourished and they wanted to keep it in hospital for a while. In Ammon's mind and in his public proclamations, what had happened was that the baby was forcibly vaccinated, which is a high crime in the mind of Ammon Bundy. And the hospital says that that's not true. They simply, you know, made sure the kid wasn't malnourished anymore and sent the baby home with its parents. Now the hospital is suing Ammon Bundy for, for defamation. Of course, when Ammon Bundy says something like this about a hospital, that means that the hospital's employees are harassed. Uh, you know, there were protests outside the hospital, intimidation of staff. You know, Ammon Bundy has doxxed cops before, who he, in the case of Sarah Brady, the cop who arrested her, his identity and, and all of his details were published by Ammon Bundy. So all of this comes with significant harassment of public employees. And St. Luke's, I guess, um, was the one institution he picked that kind of decided to, to draw a line in the sand by suing him for defamation. And that's 
what's led us to the situation we're in now. So, Jason, this, I mean, this sounds like a fairly run-of-the-mill defamation lawsuit. And for folks who haven't been following along super closely, I mean, three St. Luke's doctors and staff, they were docs, they were accused of child sex trafficking, just all kinds of, you know, terrible stuff kind of out of the the QAnon literature um, was hurled at these you know, private individuals. But rather than go to court and you know be normal about it, take the L or settle, something like that, Bundy's done something uh, a bit unconventional. I mean, how has he responded to this lawsuit? Yeah, you'll wait a while for Evan Bundy to do something normal. <laughs> Since the lawsuit began, he hasn't just simply hasn't showed up to any hearings. He hasn't meaningfully participated in the case, which is in the state court in Idaho. He has rallied his supporters, who many of whom have, have been staying at his property um, or intermittently showing up there, you know, as a show of strength. And basically he's been refusing not only to show up in court, but he's been preventing, uh, you know, police officers from from serving him documents in the case. Um, and that's what's kind of at stake in this standoff. Basically, you know, sheriff's deputies are trying to serve Emin Bundy. You know, they've blocked the road. They've had people gather there who are armed or presumably armed. And they're just trying to stop stop the sheriffs giving them any kind of documents related to the case. After not participating, by the way, Bundy's most recent move has been to ask them to transfer the case to federal court. I thought he hated the fans. Well, yeah, um, it's unclear why suddenly he thinks he's going to get a fair shake from the federal government. Um, Perhaps because uh, on two previous occasions where he's been prosecuted in federal courts, those prosecutions have failed. And, you know, also because the federal government is his biggest bugbear and, and maybe he feels like he's playing a little bit of 4D chess, you know. If it's a federal prosecution, that's going to be easier for him to set up as the latest persecution of Amon Bundy by, by the feds. But uh, it's unclear why he thinks he's going to do better in federal court. It maybe could be just a delaying tactic, but it's... The one situation where, as you said, Kelly, it seems like a pretty open and shut defamation case. The the hospital is going to have a lot of evidence of uh, Bundy and his supporters just telling lies about the hospital and the people who work there. Uh, totally mischaracterizing the situation and spreading that far and wide. It might be the one instance we've seen where not only is he going to be held accountable, but there's an opportunity for the hospital in discovery to find out a lot more about his finances and to to kind of really discredit him in the eyes of his supporters. Because, you know, I said earlier that he used to run this kind of car detailing <laughs> company, which, you know, worked with car fleets. It's not clear that he's done a day's work since the standoff, you know, like in, in the sense that normal people would think about work. He's done a lot of fundraising. The hospital, this is not me talking, the hospital in in filings and in, in statements has called him a grifter. And and they're really, they seem really enthusiastic about finding out more about where his money's coming from, where it is, how he's been raising it and how he's been spending it. And I think that that kind of accountability is the last thing that Emin Bundy wants. I too am enthusiastic about what they could find out. Do you think this is headed for a standoff? I mean, obviously with this guy, with the average uh, lawsuit defendant, you wouldn't think there's going to be a standoff. But in this case, uh, you know, that threat is always there. As so many things do, it depends on what the cops do. So Sheriff Wonder, you know, he didn't want to send his officers to serve these papers on Bundy because of the danger that Bundy presented to them. You know, there's a lot of people, not only in Idaho, but around the country who are kind of frustrated about the impunity 
that Amon Bundy seems to have enjoyed throughout his career as an anti-government activist. And, and, you know, so there was some public outcry about the fact that the deputies just weren't going out there. Since then, deputies have attempted to serve Bundy, but, you know, quite carefully and without putting themselves in undue danger, which is probably appropriate. I mean, it's, it's a civil suit. Bundy's not going beyond his own property. There doesn't seem to be an immediate kind of danger to public safety from him and his supporters as yet. So I think they're kind of trying this approach of patience and, and persistence. But, you know, at this point, he's not only got papers from the civil suit that they're wanting to serve, but he's got, you know, contempt charges um, alleging witness harassment and intimidation. You know, he's going to have to answer questions under oath. The court has already ordered that he disclose financial data. And, and that's on top of the compensatory and punitive damages that they're seeking in the civil suit. I think that it seems like the approach is to wait him out, to just simply take the approach that he can't stay in there forever. He's going to run out of beans at some point. And, you know, they're going to serve him whenever they can. That seems like a sensible approach. It's the kind of approach I think that the feds took in Malhua. And, you know, one person died, obviously, Lavoie Finnegan. But basically, apart from that, that was peacefully resolved. They didn't try and storm the compound or anything. I just wrote a piece last week for the, the kind of uh, 30th anniversary of, of Waco, which was an infamously disastrous approach to resolving this kind of thing by law enforcement. You know, as, as to your question, though, Will, is this at risk of developing into a standoff? I mean, yeah. What is a standoff? How long is a piece of string? I mean, it already kind of is in the sense that he's refusing to come out, refusing to admit law enforcement officers to his property. He's digging in his heels, not responding to the authorities. It already kind of is, I guess. The difference is this time he's he's occupying his own property rather than someone else's. But I don't think it's going to develop into you know a, a situation where armed deputies are storming the property or anything like that. It seems like they're content to wait him out, and that seems like a sensible approach and the approach that law enforcement have taken to these kind of situations increasingly over the last couple of decades. This is the, uh, I'm, I'm staying in my room and I'm not coming out standoff, which I think is Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more a sit-off, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jason, you know, moving moving on to a little bit more of your approach from out west, you had some really interesting reporting on a Shasta County, uh, California supervisor who looks like he paid some taxpayer money to uh, go hang out with Mike Lindell. Can you catch up to speed on that? Yeah. So perhaps both of you might understand that Shasta County is one of these places in the west, you know, and North Idaho is another where anti-government anti-vax, far-right activists have really kind of significantly been elected to significant positions in local government and have kind of, not to oversimplify, but have kind of taken over local government in that county. It's a pretty terrifying situation for the people who live there who don't share these folks' views. It arose out of, there's a church there called Bethel Church, which is not necessarily behind all of this, but certainly their congregation overlaps with, you know, a lot of these activist circles. There was a recall last year of a of a county supervisor there on the county board of supervisors called Leonard Motti, who was a kind of a Reagan Republican, which made him unacceptably moderate to these folks who had been resisting vaccines. And he was recalled, in fact, over his implementation, as he was obliged to by law, of, of California's COVID-19 mandates. That's what saw him recalled. That recall was 
led or supported by militia groups there and funded by this kind of well, strange right-wing billionaire who tried to build a, a vineyard out there and couldn't get over the line in terms of zoning and has basically hatched this revenge plot against the county and has poured close to a million dollars into local government elections there in the last couple of years. His name is Reverge Anselmo. He's now in Connecticut and he supported the recall and he also made big donations to a political action committee in the county, which in turn supported these candidates for the County Board of Supervisors, which included Kevin Cry, who's at the center of this story. Now, (laughs) Kevin Cry, he runs a kind of, it's like a ninja academy for children, it's called. You've got my interest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he has run kind of like martial arts schools and and things like that in, in the county. And he's part of the majority along with Patrick Jones and Chris Kelstrom, and they voted last month to terminate the county's contract with Dominion Voting Machines. And, you know, pretty much explicitly on the basis that Dominion Voting Machines had been implicated in, in you know, the defeat of Donald Trump. Like They were basically repeating the conspiracy theories that have cost Fox News so much money, you know, and other companies that Dominion have sued over these conspiracy theories, these false conspiracy theories about the election. And so, like, those conspiracy theories, you know, Foxes had to pay out a bunch of money, um, almost $800 million, you know, like, that's fine. But those conspiracy theories are still kind of rippling around the country and, and propelling events in places like Shasta County. Now, after he cast this vote to suspend the contract with Dominion voting machines, which, by the way, it's it's going to triple the cost of elections. I mean, it's left them without a settled system of voting, and they're probably going to have to hand count ballots, and that's going to cost something like $1.5 million, whereas, you know, the voting machine system will cost around a third of that. They're going to have to employ a whole bunch of people to count the ballots. You can't use volunteers in California. None of this was really kind of thought through in advance, obviously, but what did happen in advance was that Kevin Cry flew on the county's dime to spend a day with uh, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, And, you know, he claims to have spent five or six hours with Mike Lindell, four or five hours, sorry. And, you know, he claimed also that Lindell had agreed to provide financial support for the hand counting of votes in Chester County, but there's no real detail on that. And as we know, Mr. Lindell last week was ordered to pay out $5 million, a cash reward to a guy who had accepted his challenge to debunk one of his false claims about the election. And the the guy did that pretty easily and then demanded the cash. And a court has now ordered Lindell to pay that cash award. So, you know, he may not have a a lot of money lying around at the moment. And Lindell's actually being sued for $1.3 billion by by Dominion, by the way. But that hasn't stopped him kind of spreading these conspiracy theories. But people, you know, who are opposed to this far-right majority on the County Board of Supervisors were pretty upset locally when they found out that not only were they going to have to foot the bill for hand-counting ballots, but the cry had flown on the county dime to, to, to see Mike Lindell to get his advice on the future conduct of elections. And, and that seems to have, yeah, influenced his decision to vote in favour of breaking this contract with Dominion. God, for that money, you could just have bought everybody in the county some pillows, you know, done some actual good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe maybe you'll send a bunch of pillows for the people who have to hand-count the votes, so, you know, they have to sleep <laughs> over or whatever. All right. Well, we've been joined by Jason Wilson. He's a journalist at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Jason, where can people find your work? They can find it at uh, splcenter.org. 
org slash hate watch. Wonderful. Uh, well, Jason, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Will. All right. This week on Fresh Hell, we return to the Daily Beast Movie Club, where Will has the scoop on a delightful new uh, cinema venture that we might want to check out. Typically, when we talk about Fresh Hell, we're using this metaphorically, perhaps as something a bit unappetizing or something truly disturbing for our listeners. But this time, I bring you a tale of the devil himself, the guy who runs hell and has journeyed out of it to cause trouble for our B-list talk radio hosts. So here's the story. You know, here on Fever Dreams, we always like to keep an eye on the rise of demonology on the American right. The idea that whether it be QAnon or or something a little more mundane, that the people are convinced the devil is a real guy and he's stalking around causing trouble for our right wing pundits. And in this case, we saw a great example. A guy named Steve... Now, I suspect his name is pronounced Deese. He insists it's Dace. It's kind of if folks have ever seen Keeping Up Appearances, a lady is Hyacinth Bucket insists her name was Hyacinth Bouquet. So it's kind of a similar thing, or like the Senator Mike Crapo insists it's Mike Crapo. So Steve Dace, he's a guy, he's, like I said, sort of a B-list talk radio guy. People may know him on Twitter. He does a little, I think, engagement farming where he, he does kind of dumb tweets and then people go like, oh, let me dunk on this guy. He, however, has been in a bit of a situation. So he put out a movie, I think last month, called Nefarious. Now, Nefarious, I'll hand it to Steve. From the trailer, it looks a little, little better than your average right-wing movie. It was made by the people who are sort of like the Orson Welles of this industry, the people who made God's Not Dead, starring Kevin Sorbo, which was a movie about a professor who said, God is dead, and then a student who owns him. And so so these folks, they made this movie based on a, a book Steve wrote called Nefarious. And the setup for Nefarious is, I think a serial killer is going to, to be put to death, but he's claiming that he's possessed by the devil. And so the governor sends a guy to talk, a psychologist, I think, to talk to the serial killer, you know, right before the execution and prove the guy's not possessed by the devil. And so, you know, we have really the setup for a movie that takes place in exactly one room to meet Steve's budget constraints. And so basically... Over the over the course of the night, it becomes clear that the devil is a real guy and he's possessing this this killer. And so Steve made this movie to make the point the devil's a real guy. But it got a little too real for Steve because as the movie came out and my sense is it has flopped. I mean, I don't have the exact numbers here, but Steve has talked about being disappointed with how it turned out. You know, certainly it did not reach God's not dead levels of fame. You know, I think one aspect of it is there's not enough for liberals to dunk on here. I mean, I feel like there's not like if, if I was running a like a DSA podcast, I would I would not necessarily watch this movie and dunk on it as you might with God's not dead. Basically, Steve started to run into a couple problems in his life in a sort of final destination way. Kelly, would you like to hear how he's dodging death? I would love to hear how he's dodging death, especially if there's a supernatural tie-in. Maybe he's being stalked by uh, Lucifer himself. Right before Nefarious came out, Steve started noticing a lot of boils on his skin. Oh, man. Um, you know, typically you don't want to be telling folks that you got boils. But it turned out Steve had come down with MRSA, which is, I understand, a very infectious ailment. And so he was hospitalized right around the release of the, the movie. Then things got worse. His wife started tweeting that, you know, Steve was on death's door, um, all this stuff. Then other people associated with the movie started uh, getting an insane car accident. His director of marketing had his car totaled by a nursing student who fell asleep, perhaps at the devil's hand. Um, his producer was putting his kid in a car seat and an SUV drove by and, and ripped the car door clean off. 
you know, fortunately, no one's been hurt here, but Steve has been implying that this is the devil. And so he went on Eric Metaxas's show. Eric Metaxas is sort of an evangelical Trump booster. Folks may remember Eric from punching a nonviolent protester, I think, around the Biden inauguration. But basically, so he went on this guy's show to talk about how he's engaged in spiritual warfare. And these two guys just talked about how the devil stopped Steve's movie from succeeding. See, here's a quote. He, he just said, 10 minutes ago, I heard about the, the one of these car accidents. This is getting insane. So the devil is really out there and he's trying to get you if you make a like $1 million budget movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny to me. Um, I'm looking at Steve Dace's, uh, you know, his, his writing credits here. He does indeed have a series of nefarious books. I have to say, I don't think the devil has targeted them as hard. But, you know, it's, sometimes these things take a few years to check out. The devil's not a big books guy. He's not on Goodreads. He's on Letterboxd. And he, is, he saw this movie was coming out and he flipped out. I knew the devil was a film, bro. I knew it. It looks like it's a kind of a two-part series, uh, a duology maybe. Uh, one's called A Nefarious Plot and the other's called A Nefarious Carol. It seems like there is someone called Demon General Lord Nefarious. It's okay. And he's finally conquered America. It's a ripoff of the screw tape letters is the deal, is the books. And so, and so, but it, he sort of shaped it up into this movie about this thing that goes down in a prison and, and you know, it gets so intense. But, you know, but, but it sort of seems from this interview like eric metaxas was kind of dra dragging out of steve that the movie was a flop like he was saying like look man i've done creative stuff too i know it's a bummer when it doesn't do well like and just sort of like maybe you don't have to blame the devil well i think the devil is definitely going on to imdb right now and giving it about a six and a half star rating which i feel like if the devil were really committed it would at least get it down to a four but you know. Satan does what he can. So I just love this excuse that, like, you know, the devil screwed up my my latest project. Just the idea that, you know, the devil is is the hidden hand. And yet they also stress that, like, he's not that scary. They're like, he can't really do much. It's like, I don't know. He's sending cars hurtling at you. He seems pretty tough. So, you know, best of luck to Steve Dace out there. There's also this aspect of, you know, sometimes we talk about these guys where there's something else. They, the obvious solution is staring at them. And so in this case, now... This guy has his associates have faced multiple near fatal car accidents. Could the issue be car culture? And maybe car is maybe it's crazy. We let everyone just drive a missile around. No, it's the devil. Wait, can I tell you something truly nefarious? Because I'm on the Twitter page for this movie and somebody has, I don't know via is, if this is AI or they physically made it themselves, but they made a Funko Pop doll for the main character of Nefarious. And I think that is maybe uh, a little more devilish than anything that happens in the actual film. <laughs> that is truly, truly twisted. Uh, well, th this has been a, a true a, a, an update from deep inside Fresh Hell. Thank you, Steve Dace, for, for doing spiritual battle. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. -L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.